Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined again with Dr. Richard Alston on March 23rd, 2021, and May 4th, 2021. Dr. Alston was on the show on two different occasions. In the first one in March, we had a conversation about the transition period where Rome went from a republic to a empire. And in the second one, the latter one in May, Dr. Alston joined the show again. And we had a conversation about what scholars know about Mark Antony's life, the former Roman statesman and military commander. Today, Dr. Alston is back on the show, and we're going to have a conversation about what scholars know about Livia's life, a woman that lived in Rome in the first and first centuries BCE, CE. Dr. Alston is professor and head of the classics department at Royal Holloway, University of London, based in the UK. Over several decades, he has written many publications, including a couple books as examples. Rome's Revolution, the Roman Civil Wars and the Fall of the Republic, which was published by Oxford University Press, and Aspects of Roman History, 31 BC to AD 117, which was published by Routledge. Welcome back on the show, Richard. Nice to be back, Andrew. Okay, so a question to start things off to create sufficient context and background for the conversation, and then we can obviously work our way through the details more. Who was Livia? Livia was the wife of Octavian, who went on to become uh, the uh, wife of Augustus, uh, the same person when Octavian became emperor in 27. Uh, he changed his name. She was also, prior to marrying Octavian, uh, the wife of a guy called uh, Tiberius Claudius Nero. And she had two children with him, one of whom uh, be- went on to become the second Roman emperor, uh, Tiberius. So she's an influential wife of the first emperor and mother of the second emperor. Okay, so let's start with the um, so create some chronology. We'll 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 start soon with the early period of his life of her life. But before we get there, um, what do scholars lean on for historical sources when they're talking about Livia? Who are the main writers that uh, you and other scholars? Um, lean on in that period of time, or perhaps you know, shortly after that period of time, that r- wrote about Livia's life. She's really well attested, and to think about the importance of Livia, you have to think about earlier Roman women. We know about some Roman women from the archaic period who are attested in myths and legends, but she's the first woman to have any extensive record in our, our historical sources. We've got about eighty-eight portrait heads of Livia, uh, for example, and that compares with none uh, for women of the earlier period of the Republic. Um, She appears in the writings of Cassius Dio, a Greek historian of the third century, where you get extensive monologues um, and dialogues uh, related to Livia. Uh, She appears in uh, Suetonius's biographies of Augustus and Tiberius. Uh, she's also in Tacitus's annals, particularly on her, her later uh, life uh, after Augustus died, uh, and in her relationship with uh, Tiberius and in her political roles. So she is fantastically well attested uh, for uh, for a Roman woman. Okay, 
What's known about her early life? Let's let's start with uh, parents. What's known about her parents? Um, her father was uh, Marcus Livius Drusus. Um, very little is known about her mother. Marcus Livius Drusus is uh, from one of the great families of Rome. Um, they're really prominent in the politics of the first and second centuries. Uh, Livia herself is is born in the 30th of January, uh, 58, and is one of the few Roman women for whom we have an exact date uh, of birth. Uh, Romans always take their names from the fathers, uh, and so she's called Livia after Marcus Livius, and then she's sometimes called Drusilla as well, the little Drusus, uh, after her, her father's, the third part of her father's name. Uh, she first marries uh, in uh, 44 to the very prominent, the very prominent family of the Claudians, uh, marrying uh, Tiberius Claudius Nero. Uh, Tiberius Claudius Nero, born around 85. So there's a significant age difference uh, between them. They, they get married in 44. So at that point, he's 41 and she's 14. Okay. What year did you say she was born in? She's born in 58. On the 30th of January. Okay. Tiberius Claudius Nero, did he come from an aristocratic family? And did she come from an aristocratic family? And what's known about that that kind of milieu at that point in time in Rome? Can you speak more, more about that when it came to... Um, these different marriages that that occurred in this period of time in Rome? Yeah, there's a small number of families who are dominant in uh, Roman social and political life. Um, So the Senate of Rome about this time is composed of around 600 people, many of whom are from the same families. But there is a group of families, call them the nobiles or sometimes the optimates, um, who are the leading figures even within that pretty small elite. Now, many of those families trace their origins right back uh, to the very, very early history of Rome. So the Claudians trace their uh, origins back to a guy called Clausus, uh, who is supposed to have arrived in Rome during the regal period, and his children become Claudii, uh, and they then lead into the first dynasty of the uh, Roman uh, Roman Empire, the Julio-Claudians. But throughout the five centuries of Republican history, uh, we come across various prominent aristocratic individuals who hold positions of power, who are Tiberius or Gaius Claudius. Um, so they are perhaps the most important, one of the most important families in Rome. The Livii Drusi, the, the Livius Drusus family, slightly less prominent, but still you can see the family go back over generation after generation after generation, holding these important military and, and political positions. Now, this is a very small elite, and when they're arranging marriages, they arrange marriages to unify politically um, various various branches of the family, uh, all various branches of that uh, elite. So uh, the marriage between Tiberius Claudius Nero and Livia Drusilla would have been negotiated by her parents in order to cement a political alliance uh, between her father 
uh, and this really prominent aristocrat. Um, 14 should have had no say in this matter at all. Did she do any writing in her life? So is there anything left about her, about her writing? And if, 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 if yes, let's talk about that. If not, um, is anything in, in, inferred about um, how she might have, or is anything written about interactions with her in this early period of her, her life? No, uh, there's nothing that survives that she, she has written. Um, and what happens with our traditions on Livia is that we know about her marriage. She emerges into the historical record with her marriage to Octavian uh, in 38. Uh, and there are statues put up to her in 36 um, when she is honoured as the, the wife of the, the triumvir. Uh, and then she doesn't take a very prominent role uh, until uh, the middle of the Augustan reign. And that's when we start to see more statues of her being put up. We start to see her being advanced politically. We start to see her being honoured, particularly by communities outside Rome, where they in the Greek East, where they put up statues uh, to her alongside statues of her husband. And that prominence increases as Augustus gets older uh, and also into the period uh, when she is mother of the next emperor, uh, where she is frequently depicted as being alongside him and also as advising him. So we get textual references to her offering advice to Augustus and indeed to Tiberius at various points. Uh, but there's nothing in her own name. Okay, so let's... Um... Actually, before before we go to uh, more the, the, the marriage, marriages... Um, and then as, and then, uh, her, 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 her career, um, is there anything known about a religious orientation? Um, the way in which Livia is depicted is always seen as, uh, reflecting her particular political and religious views. Uh, in fact, what they reflect is the way in which Livia is, uh, depicted. Um, she is depicted as a very conservative, moral individual. So in her statuary, she is often uh, wearing the uh, traditional Roman dress, sometimes with uh, a veil, which is normally not across her face, but could be drawn across her face and her head uh, covered. Uh, her hair is always very disciplined, always very pulled back. Um, uh, she is seen in the traditions as someone who lives a, a conservative, moral life. Now, that suited the particular requirements of the regime to depict her in these conservative, moral ways. But even those who were hostile to Augustus and hostile to Tiberius always saw her as being someone who adhered to the traditions, the moral traditions of Rome. In religious terms, that would have meant that she would have engaged in um, the normal processes that a, an aristocratic woman would have done in sort of going to temples and going to feasts. Um, sometimes she was in charge of banquets for the women of Rome. She certainly would have attended um, uh, sacrifices which were conducted by, by her, her or behalf of members of her family. Um, and she 
is in some of her images, she's actually associated with the divine herself. Uh, so we can recognize her facial features uh, in statues of the divine. And sometimes that also reaches our textual record as well. And in this period of time when referencing the, the, the divine, what uh, can you expand on, on that? What is either known or, or speculated that the artists are, are getting at when, when uh, if, if she's being depe depicted as the divine itself? It's a complicated set of issues uh, in that if you think about an anthropomorphic religion so that the gods look like us, um, if you're a sculptor uh, and you want to decide what a goddess might look like, um, you are going to have to put a human face to that goddess. Now, when Julius Caesar uh, establishes a, a temple in the center of Rome to Venus, uh, the sculptor decides that Venus looks very much like Cleopatra, who happens to be the paramour of Caesar at that time. Now, in the Augustan period, we see statues to Ceres, the goddess of agriculture, um, to Pax, uh, maybe to Italia as well, where the sculptor takes the decision uh, to shape the features of that goddess so that they look quite like Livia. So there's an association is established uh, between Livia and this divine uh, figure. But it's a stylistic decision. Nobody thinks that Livia is in herself divine, but it creates an association. Okay. There, um, there was a passing, uh, I guess, a passing reference that exists or existed that um, that uh, Livia. So, okay. So before I go there, I'm going to ask a question about this in a moment. But what's the what's the reference to Drus uh, Drusilla in terms of Livia um, well, or Drusilla? Um, uh, yeah, Dru Drusilla. Is that is that is that as a is that that name? Is that is that reference to Livia at all? Yeah, and if you're a Roman, a Roman, a Roman man has met multiple children, uh, some will be girls, some will be boys. Um, if you have uh, boys, um, they take the, cons the, the uh, family name, which in this case is Livius, uh, and then they would take the, the, the third part of the name, which is called the cognomen, uh, which would be Drusus, and then there's the prinomen, which is something like Gaius, Marcus, Sextus, or, or Septimius, or, or, or whatever. Now, if, now, for girls, they would f be called, used normally, just the family name. So, um, Marcus Livius Drusus, if he had three daughters, would be called, they would be called Livia, Livia, and Livia. Um, and so you distinguish between those girls by giving them an extra name, normally derived also from the family so she is Livia the little Drusus so Livia the Li Livia Drusilla and she is identified as Livia Drusilla now there are other family members later on who are also called Livia because the the family name continues and they sometimes get uh, another name associated with them in order to differentiate themselves from the other many women in the family who might be called Livia or Julia 
So Drusilla is is tied to um, her father's name because her father it's had a similar going on from her father. Name. And this is again a standard Roman practice that you name people down the family line. So there's um, a, I guess, an unconfirmed, certainly an unconfirmed um, reference to. Um, so, so, so Drusilla's, Drusilla's a name and, and people, people will, will reference Livia as Livia Drusilla at times, right? That's, that's completely appropriate. Yeah, mostly she comes down in the tradition as Livia. Okay. Um, is there any, is there any reasonable speculation that, uh, Cleopatra Cellini, who is okay. the, uh, daughter of Cleopatra the seventh and Cleopatra Cellini the second spent time in Rome in, in her in her childhood um, I guess there's like a passing reference out there of her have but it, but it, but I, I'm pretty certain it's not a confirmed reference but I but apparently there's a passing reference about her having a a child named uh, Drusilla do you think there's any um, any reasonable chance that Livia is related to Cleopatra the the uh, Cellini the second in any way yeah, uh, there are different generations. Uh, when Cleopatra committed suicide, uh, her children uh, were brought back to Rome uh, and they were brought into the imperial family, into the imperial household. And Livia, who ran much of the domestic business of the imperial household, uh, um, looked after them in the family. And then they were married out into um, kingdoms in Africa, in fact, um, into, into Mauritania. Um, and uh, Cleopatra Cellini then disappears from our record uh, at, at that point when she's married out. The imperial family did uh, bring in a number of individuals at various points who were prominent across the Mediterranean um, and, and offered them, them homes. People would send their children uh, princes would send their children to Rome for a whole set of reasons, partly as a hostage, partly because family circumstances in the, in in their uh, homeland were a bit dangerous, um, and they would come to Rome. They would develop friendships in Rome with the most powerful individuals. Cleopatra Cellini couldn't stay in in Alexandria after the death of her mother, so she came to Rome. But then she was uh, of diplomatic and marriageable value. Um, and that was then used by the Roman authorities to marry her off when the time came. So let's go to, uh, so this, so she was married to Tiberius Claudius Nero. She had two children okay. with, with Tiberius uh, Claudius Nero. But then she ends up having a second marriage uh, with, um, which I, we'll, we'll get into it, but obviously presume she had a divorce. Um, with with Tiberius Claudius Nero, but she ends up having a second marriage with Octavian um, Augustus. So, can you can you speak about those events? How how all this occurred? She's very young when she marries to, to Tiberius Claudius Nero. She's fourteen and forty four. Um, what happens immediately after that is uh, Julius Caesar is murdered. Rome falls into chaos. Uh, Tiberius Claudius Nero is on the senatorial side in this dispute. And he has to flee Rome with uh, Livia uh, from actually Octavian and Octavian's uh, um, death squad who are roaming the streets looking for him. Uh, so she flees with little Tiberius uh, and with her husband. 
But eventually Tiberius Claudius Nero is forgiven, he's brought back, uh, he comes back to Rome. Uh, and when he, he, he comes back to Rome, it seems like a love story, in fact, uh, that uh, Octavian meets her, they fall passionately in love with each other, uh, and uh, in 38, uh, they get married. They get married in January 38. They delay their marriage very slightly because she's pregnant when they when they meet. She's pregnant with uh, her second child, uh, who's called Drusus, um, and they wait until Drusus is born, and then Drusus is recognised by Tiberius Claudius Nero as being his son, and then uh, they divorce, and she marries uh, Octavian. It caused a scandal at the time um, because you know, heavily pregnant woman um, gets uh, married to a, a sort of dictatorial figure. Um, it was seen as uh, Octavian using his his authority to acquire a woman, but it's also clearly rather more uh, involved in that than kind of predatory sexual behaviour. How old would she have been when the second marriage occurred? She was 20 uh, at that point, or just on 20. Uh, and he was much closer in age because he was born in 63. So he's only five years older than Hannah. What? So they're much closer in age um, than she was with her first husband. So when she's married to Augustus, Octavian, what... Uh, what are what are official titles that are gi- given given to her? Whether um, whether in that period of time, if if that occurred, or or afterwards. Now this is a really interesting problem because, of course, Augustus is the first. We think of him as the first Roman emperor, but there is no position of Roman emperor, so there is no official titles. And women who were married to Roman magistrates had no titles. Why should they have a title? These are magisterial positions. So no title gets associated uh, with Livia initially. So what we see with Livia is the gradual accretion of various sets of honours, which start off with statues around 36 being granted to her, and then gather pace uh, during uh, Augustus's reign. Now, when Augustus dies in 14, there is an attempt to develop some specific titles to honor her. One of the things that looks really quite strange to us is on Augustus's death, he adopts her into his family. So she changes her name to Julia and she is then given the feminine version of his title. So she becomes Julia Augusta. And then there is discussion of whether she is to be known as mother of the nation, Mater Patriae, and though that title never comes through. She starts to appear on coinage at this point, um, being described as uh, Julia Augusta. She's given the honor of riding in a carriage, which is a very unusual, kind of very regal thing for a a Roman woman to do in the center of of the city. Uh, And her her position becomes more and more formalized, uh, mainly during the the reign of of her son Tiberius. Um, In a point of clarification, who who was it that uh, and you, you referenced the term adopted uh, her into the fa- family. And, and if you could elaborate on what that means in, in, the, in the context of this, um, this period of time. But who, who was it that adopted 
her into the family, which then triggered the the adi- the additional appellation Julia Augusta. Well, that was her husband in his will. Um, he couldn't clearly couldn't adopt her into the family um, while he was married to her because that would immediately raise questions of incest because um, uh, she would technically become his daughter. Um, but once he died, he adopted her into the family. The significance of that means that she becomes the direct link between the first two emperors. So in familial terms, she is the mother of Tiberius. But Tiberius has no familial relationship with Augustus. So the link is actually Livia herself. So by adopting her, she becomes a member of Augustus's family, even after his death. And that brings Tiberius into a different familial relationship with Augustus, which eases the transition between Augustus and Tiberius. And then during the reign of Tiberius, she is the representative of Augustus and the traditions of Augustus. And that's why she carries that name Augusta. She is in some senses continuing on that Augustan tradition of rule and of advice to her son that she was performing to her husband. And when you're referencing, so there's there's two different Tiberiuses so far in this conversation, right? As a point of clarification, there's her ex-husband, but then also her son, yes. Tiberius. Okay, okay, I, I understand. And, and her, 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 her son, because he was also the son of Tiberius Claudius, carried his name, Tiberius Claudius, onto the next generation. This is one of the reasons why studying Roman family history is so immensely complicated. It's almost impossible sometimes to work out which representative of the family you're, you're looking at. And when you get the girls, especially the women, it, it's, it's very difficult to work out which particular Julia we are talking about or which particular Livia or Livilla uh, we have uh, when you just get the name. And it, you know, we're, the historians who write about it sort of assume we know who they are um, and the moderns pore over it, wondering whether we can get the identification exactly correct. Well, we've, we've been, you've been on the show and we've had these kinds of conversations, Richard, right? So, you know, contemporary, yes. contemporarily, people speak about, you know, emperor very easily, right? But then you get into yeah. it, and then you realize they weren't they weren't using a term like emperor at the yeah. at, at at the given time, right? And then you have terms like Augustus. Well, which Augustus are you talking about, right? Yeah. And then you know, and then you get into you know Augustus in that period of time, and then that slightly changes, and you have Caesars and Augustuses when you get into the Tetrarchy as you as you go you know later on in in history. Yeah, and 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 um, the name Caesar, which is used very frequently, and and. You right. see that Caesar may be used for the emperor, but it may be used for the emperor's son as well. Um, and these t- these terms are deliberately um, creating the linkage between the various generations. And we have to think about that in terms of Roman structures of thought. The Romans are much less individualistic than us. So we uh, define ourselves very individualistically. We're not defined by our parents. We're not defined by our grandparents. Um, we live a lot longer uh, and we can make our own lives in, in, a, in a much greater way than the Romans did. Uh, but the Romans were continuing on 
the family traditions from generation to generation. They were much more representatives of the family. And this is why the names follow on from, from generation to generation. They would honor their ancestors on a regular basis. They were not individuals in the same way we are individuals. They were representative of a tradition makes for an interesting conversation as you uh, start to break down all these different terms and relationships. Cultural and stuff. differences are, are really important in, in at those very basic levels of, of uh, how people sort of themselves and how people regarded their lives. Um, and again, if you think about uh, the issue of uh, arranged marriages in, in this instance, um, for us, that that's very odd. Um, it was, it's a very strange expectation for most people brought up with the same, within Christian traditions of romantic love. But this was an expected way in which an aristocratic woman would fulfill her duty towards her family. Um, she would marry at 14 to whoever her father told her to do because that's what she was supposed to do. That mm. was her role in life. Um, and you can see that this is a very different way of viewing yourself uh, but of viewing the way in which your life is being constructed and what is important. Hmm. So she's married now at this point in the conversation to Octavian Augustus. What's known about her role or influence in governance and policy matters as an adult? In the way in which the Romans thought about policy matters, it was always a matter which was discussed by the men. So on the official level, all policy was always decided by the men in the various capacities. That's the official story. Now, unofficially, if you're a Roman man and you're trying to make an important decision, you call together a council, a group of people who will advise you on what to do and how to do things. Traditionally, your wife would be part of that discussion. So wives would advise their husbands on political matters. And so they would hold power behind the scenes, power in the household uh, and power which would then be used to advise the extremely powerful individuals uh, as to what they might do next. Now, that tended not to be brought out into the open and we just pick it up in little fragments in, in the late Republic. By the time you've got to the Imperial um, household, you've got a much smaller group of people who are close to the Emperor. And we have literary depictions of Livia advising Augustus on questions of how to deal with those who are conspiring against him. And she is important in that role, as is expressed in this account, because Livia is one of the few people whom Augustus can trust absolutely. Their fates are closely tied to each other. So if Augustus falls, Livia falls. She has no career, no personality, no life, independent of him. So as she's really well connected within the Roman aristocracy, she knows what is going on. She's in an excellent position to provide him with impartial advice. And the women of the imperial family continue to 
advise, support uh, the husbands, in part because they are so closely tied together. So we shouldn't think of these women as being background figures, as being figures who are kept away from uh, the main stages of Roman politics. Everybody knew that someone like Livia would have had considerable influence on a day-to-day basis over her husband. They wrote to each other on a daily basis, for example. He was away from Rome a lot, but even when they were in Rome, uh, they still exchanged letters on a, on a regular basis. Some of those letters come down to us, uh, actually letters from Augustus to her, uh, in um, Suetonius's writings, for example. It's very clear that they were a partnership, and that's not uncommon for Roman husband and wife. They were a partnership in the joint political and social ventures. So yes, she would have had an influence tracing exactly or tracing any policy directly to her uh, would have been would have been difficult. So if you think about the way in which American uh, first ladies are sometimes associated with particular political interests or particular endeavors or political associations, we don't have that. Everything comes out in the name of Augustus. But we do suspect that many of the most important decisions would have been run past Libya first. Do any of those letters that she was writing and having sent to uh, her husband, do any of those survive? Uh, not from her, but letters from from um, from him to her, mostly talking about family matters um, and about members of the family and evaluating them do seem to survive and get reported in the archives. Um, so talking about, for example, uh, Claudius, the emperor, future Emperor Claudius, uh, and what is to be done with him, uh, those issues do occasionally turn up. The Roman historians are not terribly doc- focused on documents, um, so it is quite rare for such stuff to arrive in our sources. Okay. Um, okay, and I want to clarify, you probably mentioned it, but how many children in total in her life is she known to have had? Two. Uh, so it's Tiberius and Andrusus. Uh, and she had no children with with Augustus. Okay. He had a child by a previous marriage, uh, Julia. Okay, and that's where I was going next. Okay. Um, so can you, can you speak about um, what happens? So I don't like, as, as you know, I don't like asking leading questions, but she outlives uh, Augustus. Can you speak about um, the, what's known about the, the, those, those events? Because it was probably a, a, a very significant um, part of her, her life was the death of Augustus. He has a central role in that. Uh, again, coming back to the political circumstances, there is no procedure for an accession of a new emperor or for succession because it's never happened before. So when it becomes clear that Augustus is seriously ill, uh, she summons Tiberius um, to the villa, at which point she closes all the doors um, and they await uh, Augustus's death. It's unclear whether Tiberius gets there in time uh, or whether he's dead beforehand. But as soon as he's dead, they then take measures to assert control. So she manages the next stages of that operation. And that means securing the loyalty of the Praetorian Guard, 
uh, and then summoning leading members of the Senate um, so that they will uh, take the oath of allegiance to uh, Tiberius. And it's at that point when she has enough of a consensus behind them that they then come to Rome, the death is announced, the corpse is, is brought, the funeral takes place, and you then get uh, pres uh, constitutional procedures which confirm uh, Tiberius in place. But he's already that's already been stage managed by him and Livia um, so that all the main political players um, have been brought under Tiberius's wing. The response of the Senate uh, to uh, Augustus's death is to honour extensively Livia uh, and to honour the way in which she has supported her husband. And through that, they are also clearly honouring Tiberius uh, by honouring his, 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 his mother. She's made, for example, a priest, a priestess, in the cult of Augustus, because Augustus is made a god just after his death uh, and is given a prominent uh, officiating role that sacrifices to, to his spirit, as well as these other honours and titles. These are demonstrations of loyalty, not just to Augustus and not just to Tiberius, but to the conception of an imperial family and that um, political loyalty follows not just the individual or not just an individual position, but follows a familiar line. And to a certain extent, that means the growth of, that means the birth of a monarchy. You know, one could argue that what we're seeing in the Augustan period is the dictatorship or a kind of constitutional uh, conglomeration of power in the hands of an individual. But once that passes down to the next generation, once it becomes associated with a the family, then you've clearly got a, a monarchy. So... Tiberius, her her child with her previous husband ends up becoming the next Roman emperor. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Octavian, you mentioned, had a child as well. So what what's the reason in that case of Octavian's child not being the next emperor and instead it was Livia's child with her previous husband? Fundamentally, because Augustus's child is a girl, it's Julia. Uh, women never have formal political positions all the way through to the fall of, of the Roman Empire in the West. So Julia becomes um, a sort of marker of the next possible successor um, to Augustus. So when she's young, she marries uh, another Claudius, Claudius Marcellus, uh, who dies very young. Uh, she then marries Augustus's uh, best friend um, and his leading general, Marcus Agrippa. When Marcus Agrippa dies, she actually marries Tiberius. Uh, so she's married to Tiberius. But in 2 BCE, a scandal breaks where she is accused of having many, many lovers, uh, and uh, she is sent into exile. Uh, and soon after that, Tiberius, who had retired from public life and is in the uh, in the east at the time, is brought back to Rome, and he then becomes the most prominent male relative uh, of uh, Augustus. 
uh, and the presumed successor. But the marriage with Julia had at that point been dissolved on account of her adulteries, alleged adulteries, we should probably say. Okay, yeah, and I was gonna, I was gonna clarif- clarify because um, we're talking about a bunch of different names. The the exile what occurred with Julia, not Livia. No, Livia always remains uh, in, in 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 Rome or with Augustus. It's Julia, uh, the daughter of uh, Augustus, who gets exiled for adultery. Interestingly enough, um, her daughter, who is also called Julia, also gets exiled for adultery. And this seems to be a part of the way in which um, oppositional uh, female members of the imperial family are removed. They're accused of adultery and then they're sent into exile. So it's uh, in part Tiberius clearing the ground of anybody who might oppose his succession by getting them sent off to various Mediterranean islands. Okay, so let's uh, let's go to the later period of Livia's life when her, I presume her, um, her her son, so Tiberius becomes the next Augustus, the next Roman Roman emperor. Is there anything you wanted to add in that transition period from her husband's death to her son becoming? Roman Roman Emperor, and then can you speak about the uh, the later period of her life, that kind of relationship or juxtaposition of of her life, and then her son now being the the Emperor of Rome. What's interesting about it is that Livia has a very high public profile. She appears on coins, so coins. Uh, sort of one of the mass media of the ancient world. How do you get somebody's image out? How do you get political slogans out? You don't have newspapers. Um, you don't have mass media. The only thing you can probably guarantee that everybody is going to see is a coin. So uh, Livia's head, as Julia Augusta, appears on lots of coins minted across the empire. Her statues appear everywhere. Uh, there's a very famous pair of statues now in the Prado Museum uh, in, in Madrid where she is next to her uh, son. And Tiberius is depicted in a hyper-masculine way. So his, you know, his shirt has fallen off. Uh, he's a highly muscled figure. Um, he's uh, got that thin Julio-Claudian uh, athletic face. So he's this kind of superhero-type divine figure. She is next to him. And given you know, there's a you know, she is now quite old, She's depicted as a young, idealized, feminine uh, figure, obviously fully wrapped up in her clothing. Um, but what we're seeing here is a partnership being displayed to the Roman world, a partnership of mother and son in the governorship of the empire. And there are stories of people trying to get to Tiberius or trying to advise Tiberius and finding that the best way of doing it was going to Livia and asking Livia to intervene or to persuade uh, her son of various policies or various decisions with regard to members of the Roman elite uh, should be taken. So uh, when Tiberius ascends to the throne, there is one other figure 
who is a possible rival. This is a, a guy called Agrippa Posthumus, who is at that time in exile. He is murdered in the immediate aftermath of uh, Augustus's death, so he is removed from the scene. Tiberius clearly didn't do it because he says, you can't murder a member of the imperial family, I didn't do this, and orders an inquiry. The guy who is probably responsible immediately goes to Livia and says, you can't have an inquiry into this um, because the secrets of empire have to stay within the imperial family. And Livia then goes to Tiberius and gets him to call off the inquiry. So we never know who did it, though everybody has their suspicions. And it's that level of influence that we can see operating with Livia. It's a personalized influence. And so when she dies, very large, very large numbers of the Senate owe her favors. She has intervened. She's paid dowries out to the, for the daughters when they have less money. She's helped them arrange marriages. She's done little favors here and there. And so they respond to her death eventually uh, with, again, a whole raft of honors and proposing a whole raft of honors uh, to Tiberius, most of which he, he declines for his mother. But she is evidently a very prominent figure. Those who oppose Tiberius uh, try to use Livia to get at him. They try to depict her as a monster, as a, a feminine uh, emperor behind the scenes who has um, excessive influence, who has questionable friends. But of course, that never works with Tiberius. Tiberius is always going to support his mother. And he sees that any attack upon Livia is also an attack upon him. How does she die? Dies of natural causes in her mid-80s. Uh, very, very old. And this is a, a culture in which your uh, life expectancy uh, is probably in your mid-30s. So she is exceptionally old when she finally, finally dies. Um, uh, so she's been around as a highly influential figure in, in Roman politics then through almost three generations of Roman politicians. Um, she is not just part of the furniture uh, she is a central figure in the imperial household and therefore in the politics of Rome yeah and in a bit of the research prior to our conversation um, there really is a dynasty that's involved with with her associated to her um, so can so can you as a, as a closing question can you can you sum, summarize that that dynasty based on you know the 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 uh her her son you know her initial son tiberius yeah so um her son tiberius becomes uh the next roman emperor um and uh then the roman empress follow broadly down the family line uh so you've got uh guys caligula who is her grandson um becoming the next emperor uh then you've got uh, Claudius, uh, who was brought up in the imperial household, uh, and then Nero, who was actually adopted into the family, uh, so not so 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 closely related. Um, but Livia is one of the founders of that uh, dynasty. She's also found uh, a way in which the imperial women are supposed to behave. So she becomes a role model for future generations of members of or female members of that imperial family 
uh, and one to whom um, all those female members are then uh, compared, uh, whether they uh, adhere to the strict behavioural um, uh, conditions that Livia did uh, or not. Part of uh, your response, I presume, has already, you've probably covered in different aspects already in, the, um, in this conversation to the question I'm about to ask. But as a closing question, how do you think Livia should best be remembered? That's a really good question. And uh, she, the traditions on Livia are, are, are varied um, and uh, there is a certain amount of hostility uh, to her in some of the later sources um, who regarded a woman of prominence as being um, anathema. Um, but what we see here is a woman exercising power within the constraints of her social system. She's not a revolutionary. She's not breaking down doors. She is not and is far from uh, leading to any sort of liberation of, of women. She is conforming to the norms of her society and to that extent she is reinforcing uh, those social norms. But we're seeing here uh, uh, an intelligent, gifted uh, politician who is able to use her influence and her connections to the imperial family to achieve various political goals uh, and to maintain her family in positions of political power. History is often not just written about victors, it's often written about the men, about the great men. Um, and in that narrative, we too often ignore the fact that a great man is always surrounded by a whole number of people, many of whom are going to do a lot of the day-to-day -day work of building political relationships. And when we think about Roman women and we think about Libya, we need to be thinking of the way in which politics and society engaged all members of that society, men and women, and how women had agency and ideas and, ide uh, and engagements in creating Rome. Rome is not just a society created by men. It's a society which is also created by its women. It's always enjoyable chatting with you, Richard. Thanks for coming on the show again. It's always a pleasure, Andrew. Thank you very much. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Alston wrote as examples, Rome's Revolution, the Roman Civil Wars and the Fall of the Republic. And the second one was Aspects of Roman History, 31 BC to AD 117. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Richard and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you very much. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.